Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's time for Next Gen Friday. We are so excited about the future of our fellowship that we highlight the 40 and under pastors of CFM. We hope you are inspired by the deep bench of pastors and leaders coming up around the world. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. By telling you that this message was not in my plans. I generally, for a couple months leading up to when I'm going to preach somewhere, I start an organizer, I start, uh, what am I exactly preaching, what sermons might I think, and I try to pray over the church and get the mind of God for the church, and this was not on my list, and uh, I was unsettled as far as what to preach tonight, and uh, last night began going through things this morning in prayer, wrestling all afternoon, uh, because it doesn't matter what I want to say to the church we need to hear what the Spirit of God wants to say to the church. And so I believe that this is the mind of God for this evening. And so I'm going to minister what I believe God wants me to minister. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. I was speaking to Pastor Warner and he was telling me about a mega church pastor years back. And the man was doing a preaching series, and the title of the preaching series was, Is It All Right for Christians to... And then he would tackle what he considered gray areas. In other words, things that are not necessarily so black and white in the Word of God. So, is it all right for a Christian to watch Game of Thrones? And he had a whole sermon on this, and so he's trying to hit these uh, cultural hot topics. And so, when it came to the subject of drinking, he put it together in the same sermon with smoking marijuana, which I, I do think is fitting. I do think that they go along with each other uh, in a lot of ways. This caught Pastor Warner's attention because he wanted to see where exactly is this man going to go with it. And the pastor came to the conclusion through his exegesis of scripture that drinking was okay as long as you don't get drunk. And so he talked about how he loved visiting vineyards and wine tasting. And so now Pastor Warner's attention was absolutely captivated and wanted to know what is this man's conclusion on marijuana? And this was years ago. And the pastor concluded that marijuana was not okay because it was illegal. Essentially, this man was building a doctrine to justify his personal preferences. He liked drinking, he liked wine tasting, and so he found a scripture and he kind of uh, massaged a doctrine, a, a, an idea about it through the scripture. But I will tell you that it is a very slippery slope when you start by asking the wrong questions. The question, can a Christian is somewhat lazy and shallow 
And it's a carnal sort of question. Essentially, you are asking, what can I get away with? Give me a list of rules to follow. Give me a yes or give me a no. But I will tell you that the greater question is not can I, but rather should I? This is a spiritual question because it's something you have to wrestle with. When it comes to gray areas or areas where it doesn't necessarily say uh, this is this and that is that, you have to begin to wrestle with these issues, which is where your relationship with God grows. You have to sort through things. You can't just pick and choose scriptures. You have to examine the whole counsel of the word of God. And the apostle Paul was very good at exploring the spiritual questions of following Christ. And I will tell you that this is more difficult. The apostle Paul always went beyond the action into the motives. He talked about the consequences of Christian liberty And when considering his conclusions, we are forced to ask deeper questions than can I. We are forced to wrestle with our motives, with our desires. We're forced to wrestle with our spiritual temperature. We are forced to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to explore the Apostle Paul's deeper questions on the subject of drinking this evening, but I also want to then take you a step further and how do we as believers wrestle with what might be considered by some gray areas in our walk with God. And this is especially important for young kids, for church kids, because church kids are notorious for pharisaical attitudes of give me the law And let me see how close I can get to breaking it and just be on the right side of the law. You have to learn how to wrestle through issues and stop asking, can I, and start asking, should I? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let's look at the slippery slope. And before we get into the issue of drinking this evening, let's consider the Apostle Paul's context. Let's step back, take a wide view of what he has discussed thus far in the book of Ephesians or his letter to the church at Ephesus. As always, the Apostle Paul has laid out some incredibly deep theology in the first three chapters. If you study Paul's letters, theology comes first and then application comes second. He was a very practically minded man that no matter how deep the, the theological depths or the theological heights that he would go to, he would always end on a practical note. What does this theology mean and how does it play out in life? How does the theology live? Because theology isn't of the slightest use unless you can put it to practice. 
He begins to lay out the practical implications of his theology to the church at Ephesus. He challenges them to strive for unity in the body of Christ. He speaks of all the gifts that God has given the church so that the church can be built up. And then he challenges them to grow and mature. He challenges them. He says each one of us must do our part, uh, that we need to build each other up in love. And then he begins to draw some contrasting features between the world or what he refers to as the Gentiles and the church. He says you should no longer live the way they live because they live in darkness and we live in the light. Put off your old self, he says, and put off your deceitful desires and put on your new self and righteousness and holiness. And then he tells us how this theology is going to affect the way we speak, that we need to stop lying to one another, that we shouldn't be gossiping and cursing and slander needs to stop. Obscenity shouldn't be coming out of our mouth. Coarse jesting shouldn't be a part of the vocabulary of the believer. There should be a difference between the world and what we are and then he challenges them to get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and brawling he tells them there must not be any sexual immorality there must not be any greed because this is improper for God's holy people that we must no longer live in darkness meaning we don't live in uh, we live in the light meaning our lives are accountable to one another we're not hiding things we're not trying to do things in the dark He says we must now be kind to one another, that we need to learn to forgive one another as God forgave us in Christ. And then he sums it up and he says, I want you to be imitators of God and I want you to live a life of love as God has loved us. And then we come to what we just read. Now, let me read it again in light of that context. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So his first appeal, as he heads towards the command to not be drunk with wine, is based on being careful with how we are living. And the question is, am I living and am I walking in wisdom? Verse 15, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. The Phillips translation says, live life then with a due sense of responsibility, not as men who don't know the meaning and purpose of life, but as those who do. That we understand the meaning and purpose of life. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus. So stop living like you don't know the meaning, the purpose of life anymore. Life needs to be lived with a sense of responsibility. That there should be wisdom that we consider when we're taking decisions. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1. I want you to see the issue of wisdom and the issue of wine are intertwined in the word of God. Wine is a mocker and beer is. A brawler, whoever is led astray by them is not wise. See how he ties wisdom in with the subject of drinking? That the real danger is the potential of this decision to eventually lead you astray. Is this the best way to be careful with how I am living? Let's look at more wisdom from Proverbs chapter 23 verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise. There's the word again. Be wise. 
Set your heart on the right path. In other words, wisdom means examining the path that I am on, that my heart is on. What path am I going down? Because we are all on a path and it is leading us somewhere. Verse 20, do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. But even though it may be in its infant stages now, I'm, well, I'm just having a drink. What path is this drink setting you on? What is it leading you to? King James Version says walk circumspectly, which means to walk accurately or diligently. What path is this decision setting you on? Does this action express or lead to wise living? And then he moves on to the second issue, and that is that wise living involves being aware of the times. Verse 16, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You can all testify with me that the world is getting darker, that things are getting more confusing as Jesus is coming back and the day approaches, that decisions are getting harder. It is harder to discern between right and wrong when there's a constant message of of propaganda that is coming and infiltrating your mind. Jesus is coming back soon and the days are getting more evil and he's saying, are you making the best use of these days? King James Version says, redeeming the time, which means to rescue from loss. How many of you know there's a lot of life that is lost in carnal pursuits? It further means to make wise and sacred use of every opportunity for doing good. And then finally, remember, he's leading up to this instruction of do not be drunk with wine. All of this is in the context of what he's leading to. So he then speaks again to the idea of wisdom versus foolishness. But this time, it is in the context of the will of God. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That our lives as blood-bought believers should be lived in pursuit of his will. That it is no longer our will that we are seeking, but it is his will that must become a priority. And living foolishly is living in pursuit of anything else but the will of God. You want to be a fool? Pursue something other than the will of God. The only way to live wisely is to pursue his will with all of your heart. And finding the will of God is not about one decision you make. It is about the micro decisions of every day. And you must be sober minded to make wise decisions each day that are leading you towards the will of God. One doctor describing the effects of alcohol said, because alcohol is a poison, when one drinks, they have less power of self-control, less rapidity of thought, less accuracy of judgment, less sharpness of sight, and less capacity of muscular action, and less steadiness of mind. We could also wonder from the text, and we could talk about the horrible statistics related to drinking. We could talk about how alcoholism is a major factor in four leading causes of accidental deaths. 
We could talk about how 30% of suicidal deaths involve alcohol. We could talk about how alcohol is involved in domestic violence and abuse. We could talk about the bad decisions that are made under the influence and the catastrophic consequences that result from intoxication. Dr. E.H. Derrick, who wrote about the medical problems of alcohol, said alcohol becomes a medical problem because of two attributes. He's not talking about spiritually, he's talking about medical. It's a medical problem. The first is that it, ha- it has a drug action in small doses and a toxic or poisonous action in larger doses. And the second is that its use can lead to an addiction. If we examine just scripture alone and human history, we would find a very strong link between alcohol and immorality. You almost always see immorality when alcohol is involved. Kevin J. Connor said this. He said, alcohol makes a person feel amorous, which is the feeling of sexual desire, because it depresses their inhibitions. Without the useful self-control, sexual desire is released in sometimes inappropriate situations. Alcohol releases sexual impulses. Alcohol depresses the centers in the brain in charge of sexual response. Alcohol causes loss of self-control and releases animal impulses. Let's just do a quick overview of the scriptural evidence of negative effects of alcohol. Noah got drunk out of the ark. It led to his nakedness and a curse on his son Ham's seed. Wine doled Lot's senses and it led to immorality with his own daughters, which brought a curse. Isaac had been drinking when he was deceived into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. You notice if we just look at those three alone, how their drinking affected their children. Proverbs has incredible amounts of warnings against the use of wine and all of its ensuing problems. I could spend an hour up here just reading Proverbs about wine, but rather than do that, uh, let me just read a scholar's summary. So this is a scholar. He takes the book of Proverbs and everything it has to say about wine, and he sums it up in a paragraph. This is what he says. Proverbs shows that drinking produces sorrow, contentions, babblings, wounds, redness of eyes, and it leads to immorality and strange women, which is harlots, prostitutes, It's a habit-forming drug. It causes a person to lose judgment. Remember, this is just what Proverbs says about alcohol, right? Uh, It it affects his physical health. It brings foolish talk, fighting, loss of self-control, evil impulses. It confuses and impairs mental as well as physical vision. It ends in deception as one bitten by the serpent and brings about insensibility to eternal realities. That's just the book of Proverbs on drinking. Proverbs 23, though, has what is one of the most powerful descriptions of the effects of alcohol. It starts by asking all a series of questions. Let me, let me ask the question and I'll give you uh, what, it, what the Hebrew uh, 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 idea or description is behind what he's asking. Who has woe? The word woe is a passionate cry of grief or despair. Who has sorrow? The word sorrow is an exclamation of pain. Who has strife? This is the word that leads to uh, contentions and brawling. Who is always complaining? It's talking about anxiety. That word complaining is talking about anxiety or trouble. Who has unnecessary bruises? (laughs) 
That's simple. Bruises that you can't explain. How did that get there? Who has bloodshot eyes? That speaks for itself. And then it answers the question. After asking all of these questions, it answers it in verse 30, and it says, those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. That all of these things result from entering the slippery slope of the world of alcohol. Listen to this warning because it's essential. And he says in verse 31 of chapter 23, he goes on and he says that it always begins as something very appealing. He says, do not gaze at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. When it goes down smoothly, the temptation is to think that it's harmless, that you can remain in control. But verse 32, he goes on and he says, in the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. And then he goes on, verse 33, your eyes will see strange sights and your mind will imagine confusing things, which means you can't think clearly. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of a rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. That's what they call liquid courage. Then the reality hits, and he brings the revelation of its addicting power, and he says in verse 35, when will I awake up so I can find another drink? That all of the pain and all of the turmoil that results uh, in alcohol, yet I'm looking for more. And he's describing that the thing you thought you controlled is now controlling you. Nobody ever sets out to be a stumbling drunk, but sin lies at the door. It's a lot closer than you think. So then I began to wonder and ask the question, what are the reasons that people drink? What are the reasons that people drink? Now, this is not exhaustive, but I think it covers the main points. Most drinking begins with some sort of social dynamic involved. It begins as something social. Maybe you're at a party and there's some peer pressure. Everyone else is doing it. I don't want to feel out of place I want to fit in. Or after work, the boys are going out for a few, uh, and I I don't want to, you know, I just want to fit in with them. I just want to, I don't want them to think that I'm different or, you know, that I have anything, or girls are going out for some drinks after work. Sometimes it's a celebration. Uh, There's weddings and graduations and quinceaneras, and, you know, the boys are going out, the girls, you know, and and it's just what we do. It's kind of part of our fraternity. Uh, It's what we do. I'm just trying to be social. I'm trying to be friendly. Or the social dynamic of, well, I'm just more fun after I've had a few drinks in me. In fact, my personality is such that if I don't drink, I'm just no fun to be around. So I just have a couple drinks, takes the edge off. There's a social dynamic, right? But after that, drinking can turn into a sort of minor dependency. I seem to take the edge off. I have so much stress and anxiety I just need to take the edge off after work. I need to relax my nerves. I just need to draw a bath and have a half a glass of wine. Work has been hard. I just had to, I need to have a beer just to take the edge off. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm just going to have a beer. I just need to kind of calm my nerves a little bit. So I'm just going to have a joint. Just going to smoke a little joint. It just takes the edge off. It just makes life a little more, uh, a little easier to digest. It actually makes me a better, you know, husband when I'm at home. I'm not as, <laughs> it just calms me down. A sort of minor 
dependency. Then drinking can turn into a form of escape. That we like the feeling of taking the edge off. We like the feeling that it gives us, how it calms us, and so we want to expand its usefulness. But here's how it happens. It happens because something difficult or traumatic happens to us. We're already in the habit of taking the edge off. It's gone from social to just, a, you know, let me just take the edge off, uh, just a small thing, and then something traumatic happens, and now we need it to escape from depression. We need it to escape from our loneliness. We need it to forget what is happening in our lives. I need to numb myself from the pain of what I'm going through. And of course, all of this can lead to the real possibility of addiction and total dependence. And here's what I'm saying is that everyone begins somewhere and everyone begins with an illusion of control. It's like a tool that you're using for your own benefit as needed. It's just medicine, but everything, like everything else, the slippery slope can take you somewhere you never thought you'd ever go. You know what's interesting? There's a similarity between all the alcohol commercials. They always and only show the fun side of alcohol. You ever, you, have you ever watched an alcohol? If, you, if you've ever been around drunk people and you watch an alcohol commercial, you realize something. They are not drunk yet. I mean, they're having afternoon mimosas by the fire, you know, drinking beer. They're just all, ha- you know, they're just ha- laughing, having fun, running around. Everyone is young and everyone is beautiful and everyone is happy and vibrant and they're all smiling and laughing. They don't show the middle-aged, bald, pot-bellied, drunk, passed out on his recliner. But that's 98%. They don't show that guy sitting there passed out. They don't show the husband shooting off his mouth or beating his wife in a drunken rage. They don't show stupid fights or the drunk girl falling on the floor like a fool passing out. They don't show her in the morning waking up next to someone she doesn't know. Neurologists said in some mysterious way alcohol interferes with the chemical processes that make memory. The drinker fails to record, and fails to recall things to the brain. See, everyone thinks they can hold their liquor until they can't. But the real question is not about drunkenness, because I would say that most of us would agree as believers that getting drunk is a sin. You know, even liquor stores don't like having a drunk around. It's just bad advertisement, you know, and I mean, common sense, uh, the world can tell you it's probably not a good idea to get drunk, but the real issue of progressive Christianity is moderation. That just like this pastor I started out with, uh, there are many churches, many pastors, uh, and if you have itching ears uh, today, you can heap for yourselves teachers uh, on YouTube uh, that will justify pretty much any sort of thing you want to do. And they will tell you, well, it's okay to have a drink as long as you don't get drunk. But it's important to note the scripture warnings against drunkenness because let me give you just a very simple fact. No one has ever become a drunk who never took their first drink. It's the first drink that leads to subsequent drinking. 
And most alcoholics regret that they ever took their first drink. And they did so under the deceptive rationalization that I can handle this. I can keep this under control. In other words, what I'm saying is the greatest, and I would say, not what I'm saying, what biblical wisdom says that we've just looked at is the greatest way to avoid the potential and the very real dangers of drunkenness is to abstain. And then you hear these progressive Christians saying, well, I'll just drink, I'll just drink, but I won't get drunk. What a fascinating thought. The very purpose of alcohol is an, it's an inhibitor. It slows down your brain. I was talking to a guy the other day. We were, he did not, he had no idea. He, he's talking to me about some of his marriage problems. He's had one too many drinks, but he has no idea. He's talking to the pastor about his marriage problems. And he's drunk. But he has no idea he's drunk. In his mind, he is perfectly normal. He doesn't know that his speech is slurred. He doesn't know what he's saying makes no sense. He doesn't know he's making a fool of himself. In his mind, he's not drunk. He's had a few beers. The very purpose of alcohol, it's an inhibitor. So how exactly do you know, do you know, when you cross the line from a drink to drunk? How do you know that? Most people, as they begin to get drunk, don't actually know they are drunk. So let's leave that to the side now. All the biblical wisdom, the overwhelming evidence that the word of God points to, which is stay as far away from alcohol as you possibly can. And let's just talk about the deeper considerations of a Christian, of a child of God. Because the Apostle Paul is always making us look beyond the obvious. He acknowledges that there is real Christian liberty, that there are many things that a Christian can do, that there are gray areas that we have to learn how to navigate. But the question is, should we be trying to navigate those areas or should we just avoid certain areas? And when the overwhelming biblical advice runs counter to our desires, we shouldn't be creating doctrines to support our desires. We should be submitting our desires to the counsel of God's word. That's called wisdom. Progressive Christianity is infiltrating the church. As I've said, you can find any number of preachers on the internet It will help you justify pretty much anything that your itching ears might want to hear. But this is nothing new. It's more than 2,000 years old. It's the same story over and over. The Apostle Paul was dealing with this in his time, and his advice and his guidance brings wisdom for us. He says in Galatians 5, verse 13, After all, brothers, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as a starting point for your sinful flesh but rather serve one another through love. That a lot of people will take Christian liberty and it's simply a starting point for their carnal flesh. It's a launching pad for something that they don't want to submit to the word of God. I want to take you through three important guidelines when you're navigating gray areas in your walk with God. The Bible doesn't necessarily say yes or no. It might be a gray area in general, What are three considerations that a Christian should take before making a move? 
The first one is, what establishes a right testimony with the world? As a Christian, you need to consider what decision establishes a right testimony with the world. Or I could say, what decision glorifies God? What decision sets me apart from the world? Right? 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. That Jesus called us to be the light. He called us to be the salt of the earth. That there should be something different about us as believers. Listen to Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works, good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. There should be something about us as blood-bought believers that stands out from the people we work with, from the people we go to school with, from the people that they see every day in their own lives. Uh, Am I different from the world or am I trying to blend in with the world? Is your lifestyle bringing conviction and hope to the world you're called to minister to? There was a brother in the Tucson church and uh, he got saved and uh, as soon as he got saved, it was like all of a sudden everyone wanted, to, everyone wanted him to go out uh, for beers after work with them. Like he never got invited before. He gets saved, and all of a sudden they're coming to his cubicle, and they're like, hey, man, we're going to the bar afterwards. We're just going to have a couple drinks, take the edge off. It's been a stressful day at work. You want to come with us? And so, no, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do that anymore. That's my old life. But I'm, I'm different now. And man, these guys started mocking him. They started making fun of him. I mean, they're calling him every name. They're prodding him. And what they did was every Friday for two years, every Friday they came to his cubicle. Hey, man, you want to go out drinking with us tonight? Knowing exactly what he would say. Every Friday, no, I told you I'm not doing that. Ha, ha, ha. You know, after a while it gets old. Every Friday for two years. And finally one Friday, they come up to his cubicle. Hey, you're going to go drinking with us tonight? And he goes, yeah, sure, I'll go. Why not? And the guy stopped. And they went, no, 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 no. Why would you do that? You're a Christian. You don't do that. You can't go with us. You know what happened there? His convictions actually gave the people hope. That he was giving them hope that someday they might be free from their alcoholism. That they might be able to live a different kind of life. And at first their conviction of what God was doing through this brother's life, causing him to stand out, it would make them mock him. But secretly they needed him. They needed him to say no every week because every week they were thinking to themselves, if he says no, there's still hope for me. If he sticks this out. There was something different about him. You've got to consider as a Christian, are the decisions you are making, are they causing you to be light? Are they causing conviction and hope for the people around you? Or are you just trying to blend in? The second consideration a Christian must make is what decision stabilizes my brother? 
In other words, will I be a stabilizing factor to my brother or will I become a stumbling block to my brother? When the Apostle Paul was discussing with the church at Corinth how to navigate their freedom, they were having problems because the Jews and the Gentiles had different convictions and they're mixing in the church. And so 1 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, Beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now listen, I could talk about new converts here and the example you're setting for new converts, but let me just bring this a little closer to home. Let's talk about your most important disciples, your children. Let's talk about your children. Oh, sure, you work it out. You hear some preacher on YouTube tell you it's okay to drink as long as you don't get drunk, and I'm just going to have a glass of wine and draw a bath, and you got it all worked out. you got your theology all worked out, and you've got this thing sorted. But your children are watching you. They don't have it all worked out. They just see mom has a drink, glass of wine every once in a while. Or you say, no, I hide it. Don't worry, pastor, I hide it. Oh, they're going to find out. Trust me, kids are very smart. I'm just going to have a, you know, beer after work, whatever. You know, I just, then your kids get into high school and they get invited to a party and somebody offers them a beer. And their first thought is, my mom and dad drink. What's the big deal? Like, it can't be that harmful. They haven't worked it out theologically. They haven't sorted through convictions. And all of a sudden, they can't handle it the way you handle it. And one leads to another, which leads to another, which could lead to alcoholism. It could lead to your daughter passing out at a party and waking up next to somebody she doesn't know. Are you becoming a stabilizing factor to the weak? Or are you becoming a stumbling block? Therefore, His conclusion is, in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 8, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is not not just about, well, I've got it all worked out. and I No, no, no. You have to consider as a Christian, what is your brother? How are your sons and daughters? How are weaker new converts? uh, How are they processing what you're doing and the decisions you're making? You might be strong enough to handle this or that, uh, but they may not be. And because they see you do it, uh, they're able to take this and go, well, they justify themselves right into sin. And instead of stabilizing people around you, becoming a rock that they could count on, you become a stumbling block that they're tripping over. The final consideration is what strengthens my soul? What decision strengthens my soul? In other words, what decision brings me closer to Christ? See, the question not can I, but should I, is a question of is this best for my soul? Does this stimulate my relationship with Christ? Because what our text does is the Apostle Paul places these things in opposition to one another. Do not be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, the implication is you're going to choose this one or you're going to choose that one. It is an either or. And the very important call of God to all of us who believe is found in 1 Peter 1.16. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. What does that mean? Well, you're going to have to work that out for yourself. And the question you have to ask is, does this decision, does this action make me holy? 
Does it bring me closer to the image of God? Does it consecrate me to my Lord and Savior? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Is this action glorifying God with my body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Is this action I'm taking pleasing to him? I'm going to tell you, you have to wrestle with this and you have to deeply consider the implications of your actions. See, the bigger question and the bigger issue in our text is what will fuel and dominate and govern your life? What will fuel and dominate and govern your life. He says in verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. The word is pneuma, which means a breath or a life-giving Spirit. And more specifically, when you drill down into this definition, it says the disposition or the influence which fills and governs the soul. So he says, do not be drunk with wine, Don't let wine govern your soul. The wine is going to bring direction to you. It's going to set you on a path. It's leading you somewhere. What does he say it leads you to? Debauchery. So don't let it govern your soul, but be filled with the breath of God and let the breath of God, the Holy Spirit of God, let it govern your soul. Let him govern your soul, I should say. Galatians 5, 22 is fascinating when you think about what we're talking about this evening in Galatians 5, verse 22. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Here's what I find fascinating when I look at this because I'm looking at it now in, 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 in contrast To our text, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So I'm looking at these as as opposed to one another. What are we talking about? Why do people drink? Well, first of all, it's social. Why? Because they want to be accepted. They want to be loved, right? So they go to wine to be loved, to be accepted. Well, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. They go to love, they go to, the, to wine to calm their nerves, to bring peace to their mind. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Joy, peace. Right? See, they're going to wine for the fake temporary solution to what the Holy Spirit offers in permanence. They're medicating themselves with a false substitute, and he says, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it will begin to give birth to these things. It will bring fruit forth from your life. Is it possible you're medicating yourself with a false substitute, that you're settling for less than what God has for you? Here's the greater question that we're looking at and examining tonight. is not can I, but should I? And that's where you can't just Pick a scripture and say, oh, look, I can. You have to wrestle with the overall wisdom of God's word. You have to consider things. Is this what's best for my brethren? Is this what's best for my soul? Is this honoring God with the body that he gave me? And when we consider those things, we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is the Lord who works in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let's bow our heads this evening. We're going to take some time to pray. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the VBPH Sermon Podcast. When you listen to these inspiring messages, you are helping to send missionaries from the Chandler Bible Conference in September. If you loved what you heard, please send this message to someone that needs to hear it. Then leave us a review using the links in the show notes so that everyone who wants to find this podcast will see it when they search for it. We cannot thank you enough. See you next time.